And because we know how people learn the multiplication table, and because we were able to diagnose her precise origin of difficulty, we could help her eventually to learn the multiplication table. And not only she did it, but it took her 12 five-minute sessions, so 60 minutes overall. As voices do professor. Teachers' voices. Welcome to Teachers' Voices, a podcast made from the stories of teachers from around the world talking in their own words. I'm your host, Nina Alonso. I'm an educational researcher, and I talk with teachers and learning specialists about the creative ways they tackle the issues they face. In my research, one of the most common themes that I hear from both parents and teachers is anxiety about maths. Worry about maths can hinder the development of numeracy skills and also impact other science-related knowledge. So today, I am going to share some advice and experience on how to take some of the stress and anxiety out of maths. We will hear from Lindsay Richland, Associate Professor at the University of California, Irvine, specializing in reasoning skills and mathematical thinking. Lindsay will talk about the importance of teaching methods that incorporate reasoning skills. Dror Dotan, head of the Mathematics Thinking Lab in Tel Aviv, will explain the importance of understanding the different knowledge processes that learning math entails to supporting the individual needs of learners. Finally, two former math teachers, Elena Flores, the current principal of Colegio Madrid in Spain, and Nate Marek, who now leads the educators' program of the digital platform Brilliant, talking from LA, California, will tell us about digital resources that can be useful for math teachers to support the different learning styles of students. We first hear from Lindsay Richland. I interviewed Lindsay some months ago for our episode on reasoning skills. Lindsay is also an expert in mathematical thinking, and I had a fascinating conversation with her about how preconceived ideas about math can be an obstacle for learning. Lindsay also explains how reasoning skills can be used to change mindsets around maths. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. You know, we have a, a there's kind of a worldwide feeling often that mathematics is scary and hard and um, something that's really difficult. And that's not the case always, but there is somehow this prevailing feeling. And I think it's a combination of a couple of things. But I, I think that it's really driven a lot by the way that we've decided to teach mathematics. Because actually, when you look at babies, they're already born with the ability to attend to quantity. Um, this seems to be something that we've inherited from some of our, you know, animal genetic cousins. And there are, you know, sort of these foundations that we have that allow us to immediately attend to small numbers and general quantity differences at birth. And kids seem attentive to them. They like attending to numbers. This is something they'll pick out of all the information in the world to think about, right? And so when you play with young children, attending to which one is more, which one's bigger, and those kinds of things are fun for kids. And they're actually things that, you know, they're really able to do. Beginning to count, we can 
distinguish between ones, twos, and threes. Babies can distinguish them pretty much at birth. And we then layer language onto them to build counting skills. And if that needs to be taught, right? But once that is taught, children follow a pretty regular trajectory of how they learn counting. And that seems to happen in all typically developing children with no anxiety. You know, counting can be really fun. Kids really enjoy that kind of a routine. And so then somehow there's this break that when kids get into higher level math in school, and when by higher level, sometimes I'm talking even early elementary, both children and adults sometimes get really nervous about it. And I think what happens is that we've created like a separation between the way that people think about numbers in the real world and the way that we think about numbers in the math class. Lindsay explains that this separation between maths in school and applied real-life math may be due to rigid teaching methods. Putting too much emphasis on memorization takes the focus away from problem-solving. And when we go into the math class, we often take the reasoning out of it. And instead, we say, here is something to memorize. This is what an equation looks like. This is what addition is. These are what calculations are. This is the right way to solve this problem. Memorize this way of solving this problem. And it becomes this very kind of hard thing because actually human brains are not great at memorizing a lot of information that we don't understand. We're pretty bad at that. And so we're much better at understanding how things work and then figuring out how to do the next thing. You know, that's what human brains are great at, right? We're great at problem solving. So if we can shift math to be more like that, right? Teaching kids so that they really understand why they're doing what they're doing, you're going to see less anxiety about it and much better understanding and much more comfort with math. Later on, Dror will also talk about the importance of conceptual understanding in building math knowledge. But first, Lindsay tells me about cultural stereotypes that are often gendered and play an important role in unhelpful assumptions about math. The other thing that happens is that we know that when we try to change the way we teach math in schools, children's parents went through the old system. And so their parents may be really nervous about math. So then when the parents are helping their children, and this happens a lot for girls and for girls who have mothers teaching them, we see this even more dramatically. If you see mothers who are helping their children who say, oh, I'm not good at math, but let me see if I can help you. Or, oh, let me get your father. This is too hard for me. Then we see that children see that as a model, and they say, oh, math is scary, math is hard, or maybe girls aren't good at math. And they tend to sometimes absorb those stereotypes or absorb those fears, and then that perpetuates itself. Because if you are worried about something, you don't learn it as well, then you get maybe a bad score and you say, oh gosh, I'm not good at math. And then you see this kind of cycle continuing. As we heard on our episode about gender-responsive teaching approaches, more and more teachers around the world are now working to disrupt gender stereotypes. So that's what we really are hoping, you know, that in schools we can kind of disrupt that process and hopefully build something even more positive because math is fun. So in terms of numeracy, there's a real shift in the way that math is being taught to incorporate more of this focus on understanding. So making sure that kids actually understand 
magnitudes of numbers is really positive. So taking something like the number line that you use over time repeatedly is a very positive practice. So rather than you know, the teacher teaching information, and then the student has to kind of hold that in mind and remember and then try it themselves. That seems to be a lot less effective. We also know that both for reasoning and mathematics, having children have conversations about the content is very powerful. So in math, having kids talk about how they solve a problem, compare the way that they solve their problem to the way that another student in the class solved the problem, and you know, showing students that there are many ways to solve math problems helps kids know that they don't need to only memorize the one right best way. And it helps them kind of get out of this attitude of math being something that you have to memorize and instead making it something that you can think through. And so this is the same thing that we think builds reasoning skills, which is that the more that you know and understand about a content area, the more you're able to build inferences about it, understand the patterns that are happening, and then use those patterns to make inferences or guesses about a new content area. So really, the more practice that kids are able to get doing the reasoning themselves seems to be very effective in actually building those skills. So rather than just being taught rules for how to evaluate content, how to make inferences about content, it's a matter of actually doing that work. Thanks to Lindsay for her insights about the relevance of reasoning skills in mathematical thinking. Basic arithmetic and understanding the decimal system are fundamental skills taught in the primary school years in nearly all educational systems around the world. Some digital tools can support teachers, as we will hear later, but Understanding math knowledge at different levels, at the conceptual, procedural, and performance levels, can support the different needs of students. Dror Dotan welcomes us to his math lab in Tel Aviv University. Uh, so what we do in my lab is we uh, try to understand the brain mechanisms that allows us to process numbers. Basically, how our brain handles uh, numbers in very simple tasks of numbers like basic arithmetic or uh, reading and writing and understanding numbers. And our interest is both theoretical to understand how the brain works, but we're also interested to figure out how we can use this knowledge and this understanding in order to actually help uh, people. To understand how research in math learning works in practical terms, Drod explains how an experience with a participant led to creating a new way of teaching multiplication tables. For example, to show how this works about this woman who arrived to our lab a few years ago, uh, she was 40 years old and she said she has been having math difficulties throughout all her life. And she basically gave up on learning math, uh, but and now she arrived to our lab because her children were in primary school and wanted, she wanted to be able to help them with their, their homework. So we started looking uh, what she knew and what she didn't know. Often when people say they have difficulties, it's not that they don't know anything. And indeed, she was pretty reasonable. Her performance was pretty reasonable in uh, many domains of math. And very quickly, we understood that her greatest difficulty was in knowing the multiplication table. She was completely at loss uh, with it. So we know that uh, when 
we learn the times table, when we remember the times table, we remember it uh, by heart. And one of the major limitations of human memory is what we call sensitivity to similarity. It's very hard for us to memorize things that are similar. I try to think what happens when you learn words in a new language. You'll try to learn uh, five or six uh, very similar sounding words at the same time. You'll probably get confused. Something very similar happens with the multiplication table because basically it's the same 10 uh, digits that repeat over and over again. The multiplication facts uh, are very similar to each other. For example, think of 8 times 8 equals 64 and 6 times 8 equals 48. So the story with this woman was that we saw that her uh, memory functions were actually, most of them were perfectly intact and she could uh, remember things as good as uh, you and me. But she had an issue with this uh, similarity. I said it's difficult for everybody, but she she had huge sensitivity to similarity. So I said, okay, if the issue is similarity, let's avoid similarity. So we just divided the multiplication table into a few groups that are not similar to each other. And every week she learned one group of facts that are not similar. She was forbidden to rehearse facts from other weeks, only focus on one so, so they wouldn't disturb, only focus on this week. And the results were pretty amazing. Uh, after this uh, learning, as I said, it took 60 minutes overall, 12 uh, very short sessions. And she wasn't perfect after that, but she scored uh, 80% correct, which was much, much better than uh, she started with. And she even maintained this score a couple of months later. So it really got into long-term memory. It wasn't just something temporary. And because we know how people learn the multiplication table, and because we were able to diagnose her precise origin of difficulty, we could help her eventually to learn the multiplication table. And not only she did it, but it took her 12 five-minute sessions, so 60 minutes overall. Dorot explains how this deeper understanding of the function of memory in learning influenced their development of alternative methods of teaching multiplication tables. We also know that some degree of sensitivity to similarity exists even for the average person. So we thought, okay, if, if this trick uh, of low similarity learning worked for her, would it work for everyone? So we took a group of children who didn't start learning the multiplication table yet, and we used the same trick with them, and it worked very nicely. We had this experiment in which they learned some of the facts in low similarity mode, as I described, and some of the multiplication facts in precisely the opposite condition, in high similarity mode. And they learn much, much better in the low similarity mode. And it's very interesting for a school situation because uh, when we learn the times table by columns, first times two, then the times three, and then the times four, we actually create a high similarity situation, right? All the times threes are similar to each other. Uh, now, I'm not saying that you should not do this, uh, because there is a lot of advantage in this method too, right? You understand the logic of the multiplication table. You can come up with strategies. We also heard about the conceptual understanding of the times table in the episode on best practice to build foundational skills where Andrea, a primary school teacher in Uruguay, explained how her students learned the logic behind the multiplication table with outdoor role-playing, and fine motor skill games. Here's Drought again. My guess is that at some stage at which you go into rote learning, after the children have already understood the concept, then it might be beneficial at that stage to go into this low similarity mode. 
at least for those children who are higher on this uh, sensitivity to similarity scale. Dorot explains that the positive results of this new learning method illustrates the role that memory plays in these different knowledge processes. I think it's very interesting because it's a nice way also to show the also the distinction between uh, understanding the multiplication and knowing multiplication by heart. Why we need to memorize it at all, right? Because we could use other strategies to solve multiplication facts. We could use our phone, uh, which most of us carry around now. But even if we don't want to use some external devices, we could use all kinds of strategies, right? If I don't remember, for example, how much is uh, seven times six, if I understand what the multiplication is, I can do seven times five, which I do remember, and add another seven, and I get the answer. If the question that I'm asked is how much in seven is seven times six, then probably yes, probably these uh, strategies would uh, help me very effectively to, to reach uh, the answer. But very often, Knowing the answer to multiplication question is one step in a more complicated problem, which consists of multiple steps. For example, think of what happens when you solve an exercise with fractions and you need to find a common denominator. Then knowing some multiplication facts is, would be one of several steps in this uh, procedure. If you know that something costs $65 and there's a 40% discount, how much would you still need to pay? It requires running some mental procedure with uh, several steps, some of which requires uh, solving multiplication facts. In all these cases, the times table or knowing the multiplication facts, uh, there are building blocks in this multi-stage procedure. And you want these building blocks to run automatically. Uh, If the building blocks are not automatic, then you would end up spending all your attention or time or cognitive resources on solving these building blocks and you won't have enough mental resources remaining to solve the actually difficult problem. And this is actually what we see often with children, right? They focus on the detail and they forget the bigger picture. Drodi uses the example of learning the times table to show that math learning entails three different levels of knowledge. Now, a way to look at it would be is to classify our knowledge in mathematics into a few levels. So one level is conceptual knowledge. For example, in the case of multiplication facts, this would be to understand what multiplication is and how it relates with addition. Then the second level is procedural knowledge, is knowing how to execute all kinds of mathematical procedures relating to that topic. Uh, And then at the, the bottom uh, level, perhaps, there is the, all the performance uh, skills. And this woman I told you about, she had excellent conceptual knowledge and she also had very good procedural knowledge. And her problem was with the actual uh, performance uh, skills. I think it, that especially in math, we very often assume, and it's very hype now to assume, uh, at least in my country, that if children understand, they will be able to perform And we put a lot of focus on understanding and discovery. And these are important, but it's not true that they are enough. Understanding certainly helps and it's critical to understand, but it's not the only thing. If you take example from language or from other domains, then it becomes very obvious. Think of trying to learn French if you only have conceptual understanding of French, but you don't have the automatic access to vocabulary or to the syntactic rules of the language. Maybe you'll be able to say a sentence, but definitely it will be very hard for you to say complex ideas in French before you become really automatic and proficient. I asked Trot for advice for math teachers 
based on his research. So I think I could tell two things, perhaps, to teachers. One is to remember this distinction of different levels of knowledge that I presented earlier, conceptual knowledge and procedure knowledge and the performance skills. I'm not trying to say that only one of them is important. Definitely not. All three are, are important. And I think it's critical that we know at which of them we aim when we do particular teaching activity. It's okay to teach either of them as long as we know what we're doing and why. And we cannot assume that there will be automatic generalization from one level to another. The second thing is to remember that there is a lot of individual differences, not only in their abilities, but also in the reasons for which children encounter difficulties. I think that very glad, at least in uh, Israel, there's much more awareness of this than there used to be 20 or 30 years ago. And I think that we still have a way to go uh, in that direction. And for me, when we talk about uh, personalized education, there are a lot of meanings to expression to this term. But one of the meanings is to personalize the methods and goals of uh, the education to the cognitive abilities and the difficulties of each specific child. Thanks, Dror, for his insights on what we can learn from research about the ways we build math knowledge. In past episodes, several teachers shared fascinating stories about innovative ways to teach math, like Andrea, who I mentioned earlier, or Manda, who teaches visually impaired children, or Melissa, teaching in a low-resource school in Brasilia, and even Ingrid, teaching in an international school in Beijing. As I also like asking teachers to share with us resources that they find useful, I realized that many math teachers often use digital tools that allow them to adapt to the different learning profiles of students. We know here from Elena Flores, currently the principal of an innovative school in Madrid, Spain and a former teacher of math for more than 30 years. Elena is keen to offer engaging tools and adaptive resources to primary school students from the first grade, as she wants to avoid perpetuating the fear of mathematics that Lindsay Richland described. When we founded the school, one of my biggest worries was the children's fear of maths. As a mathematics teacher, I have experienced firsthand that sometimes children get blocked, blocked by previous stories. So I was interested in establishing a confident base in math during primary school. Elena tells me about a tool called Smartic that works well for her students. It can adapt to the students' individual needs. On the one hand, object manipulation is very important. This is because visual and abstract aids complement each other because the visual aspect can be manipulated, whereas the abstract cannot. The Smartic app appears to achieve this very well. It differentiates between different levels in mathematics. These differences in maturity within the children during the learning process are very common. Smartic takes these differences into account and what they have been learning to offer a rhythm the children are comfortable with while they keep learning. It is important to leave them alone to do what they can, 
Whatever they can't do, SmartTech detects it and finds other ways for them to understand, which then leads to larger steps in their learning process. The children receive adequate and positive feedback, because if they answered randomly, this wouldn't happen. When the children's learning is a result of their thinking process, it allows constant growth while maturing and limits unhelpful comparisons between children. Each one goes at his own pace on his tablet, and it works very well there. So it seems to me that it boosts their confidence, which is also a very good thing when studying maths. In a previous episode, we looked at how technology can encourage collaborative learning, and I'd like to thank Elena for sharing her perspective on how a digital tool can help primary school students, both at school and at home, to manage their own learning progress. I wanted to know about other digital resources that support math teaching at later stages. Nate welcomes me in LA, California. Nate is a former middle school math teacher who is now in charge of the school and educators program of Brilliant, an interactive learning platform widely used by adults but also by school students and teachers. Nate talks about Brilliant for Educators. I'm really excited to share the Brilliant for Educators platform. This is a program we started during the pandemic that provides our content completely free for qualified educators and their students. All educators are interested can go to brilliant.org educators and sign up. So the feedback we've gotten from teachers is that the best way to use Brilliant is either as a warm-up extension or to refresh uh, the student's understanding. The reason for this is, is that our program is really an inquiry-based interactive program where students are going to be playing through uh, logic puzzles, solving complicated ideas by in moving around interactive pieces. Yeah, so we view Brilliant as a supplemental platform and we focus on that conceptual understanding piece because it's the part that with interactivity and through problem solving, you can really make a difference in a child's education. In line with what Lindsay Richland said, Nate told me about how using Brilliant's digital content in the classroom prompts the students' discussions, and that seems to foster the students' motivation and curiosity for mathematics. So I really view this as a partnership with the educators to take the content that we have and to make it into a discourse-based discussion. Not just have your students go on Brilliant, but have your students go on Brilliant together. And our warm-ups in particular, you know, I had a teacher tell me that the different strategies that students use to solve, that conversation really can enrich a classroom environment. And then the conversation becomes so fun because you're talking about efficiency, which strategy gets you to the cancer quicker, or which one is going to be the most applicable in the most different number of situations. And it gets away from the dialectical, like, correct, incorrect conversations that oftentimes happen in math class that can be very disempowering for students. I ask Nate how teachers can use this free resource to support the varying needs of their students. Yeah, so the first thing to do is just get on the platform, play around. I find most teachers, once they see the content themselves and not just listen to somebody talk about how good it is, they're like, oh, this is actually high quality stuff. And I want to share it with my students. And then we have these daily challenges that are great for warm-ups. They take like three to five minutes to do. And they just bring an excitement and joy and critical thinking to the start of every class. 
And then once you've done that and you've got a sense of the platform, then you can start thinking about which student can be on it when that's going to most benefit those students and differentiate the instruction. Thank you to researchers Lindsay and Dror and to Elena from Colegio Madrid and Nate from Brilliant.org for sharing their experience with me. They all made me think about the importance of being able to break the teaching and understanding of math into different layers or challenges. Just as many students can better learn when information is given in bite-sized chunks, this appears to work just as well for teachers when conceptualizing how to convey maths to their students. It's also important to remember the creativity and flexibility for teachers working with math at every level. I hope that the research insights shared here, together with the tips and resources shared by experienced educators, can offer new practical ideas and inspire reflection about the best ways to instill a love of learning math and create nurturing learning environments for all. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening to Teachers' Voices. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes of the podcast and on bolt.expert. Don't forget to subscribe and write a review if you have enjoyed this podcast. Bye.